138, Psalm 138. Let me begin reading for us at verse 1 down to verse 8. Hear now the word of the Lord. I will give thank, I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. On the day I called, you answered me. You made me bold with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you. O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord. For great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly. But the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies. And your right hand will save me. The Lord will accomplish what concerns me. Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the works of your hands. I want to read to you here a little excerpt from Cotton Mather. Some of you who read my blog, you already saw this, but let me bring it to you this morning as an opening for our theme of Thanksgiving Cotton Mather, in his book, The Great Works of Christ in America, was published in 1702, uh, recording about the works that God had done among his people in New England, colonial New England, up to that time, from 1620 to 1702. Cotton Mather says this, quote, in one of the first summers, after their sitting down at Plymouth, A terrible drought threatened the ruin of all their summer's husbandry. From about the middle of May to the middle of July, an extreme hot sun beat upon their fields without any rain. So that their corn began to wither and languish, and some of it was irrecoverably parched up. In this distress, they set apart a day for fasting and prayer to deprecate the calamity that might bring them to fasting through famine. In the morning of which day, there was no sign of any rain. But before the evening, the sky was overcast with clouds, which went not away without such easy, gentle and yet plentiful showers as revived a great part of their decayed corn for a comfortable harvest. The Indians themselves took notice of this answer given from heaven to the supplication of this devout people. And one of them said, quote, now I see that the Englishman's God is a good God, for he hath heard you and sent you rain and that without such tempest and thunder as we used to have with our rain, which after our powwowing for it breaks down the corn, whereas your corn stands whole and good still. Surely your God is a good God. The harvest which God thus gave to this pious people 
caused them to set apart another day for solemn thanksgiving to the glorious hearers of prayer. Well, uh, Cotton Mather here is describing for you, uh, young children, he's telling the story of the Pilgrim Fathers and there was a drought and they were in trouble. They were losing, because of the drought, their corn, their, their harvest. And so they gave themselves to fasting and prayer. And in the mercy of God, God caused it to rain uh, very plentifully, but not too hard that it would ruin the parched uh, corn. And so God um, spared their lives uh, through that harvest and they gave a day of thanksgiving. And we want to talk about thanksgiving from this psalm, Psalm 138, because uh, likewise, here is a psalm where the psalmist is giving thanks to the Lord because the Lord has heard his prayers, just like the Lord heard the prayers of the Pilgrim Fathers. And I want to divide this into three parts for us today. First of all, from verses one through three, we see that there is thanksgiving for answered prayer, thanksgiving for answered prayer. In addition to that, we see then, secondly, that there is thanksgiving in verses four through six, thanksgiving for the gospel spreading to all nations. One of the things that we see is the Indians took note of the fact that God had answered our pilgrim fathers and they turned to the Lord. Cotton Matter goes on to speak about how the Indians, some of you know this Indian, Squanto, who had helped the early uh, settlers uh, before he died, he gave his uh, he gave his life to the Lord Jesus Christ. He committed himself uh, to Christ uh, before death. And uh, and Cotton Mather notes that in this very same book that I read from. And then thirdly, we see thanksgiving for assurance in God's promises Thanksgiving for assurance in God's promises. So thanksgiving for answered prayer, thanksgiving for the spread of the gospel to the nations and thanksgiving for assurance in God's promises. Now, let's consider the first part, thanksgiving for answered prayer. Look at verse one again in our text. Verse one, I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. Now, notice that the psalmist here is giving thanks and it is a heartfelt thanks. He this is not a superficial praise of the Lord that's coming only from his mouth, but his emotional life, his affections, as the Puritans call it, the affections of the psalmist are involved. David was a man who was after God's heart and he was after the Lord's heart uh, with his own heart. Uh, he he is not what we call half hearted here. He is giving thanks to God. And I want you this week with me. I'm going to challenge you up front here to render thanksgiving this week with your heart to the Lord. Offer the Lord your heart with thanksgiving this week, not just your mouth, not just your amen at the, the table don't just draw near with the mouth, boys and girls, while your heart is far away from God. But at an early age, learn to draw near with your heart to God. Give the Lord your heart. Give him your thanksgiving with all my heart. He says, I will sing praises to you before the gods. Now, some of you might be concerned about that statement 
because you say, well, wait a minute. Our catechism teaches that there is no other gods, that there is only one true and living God. And you're right about that. So what is the psalmist saying here? Well, the psalmist is simply acknowledging a reality that the nations surrounding Israel do worship other gods. Now, we know that their gods are not gods. We know that they are uh, the, the creation of their own mind and their own hands. They don't really exist. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears. They can't hear. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. We learn that from Psalm 115 when we sing that psalm. And so we're not saying here that there really are <coughs> other real gods out there. But we're just the psalmist is simply acknowledging that there are people who do not worship the true and living God. We have been blessed with the gospel. Another reason we're to be thankful is because the Holy Spirit has come into our lives. And whereas we once were idolaters, our forefathers were once idolaters. Our forefathers were once ruthless and brutal people, uh, uncivilized, full of strife and murder and adultery and idolatry. Uh, God subdued us by his gospel. And even if you didn't come from a Christian home, but now are in Jesus Christ, you know, your family was impacted by the gospel coming to, to your community, by the gospel coming to your ethnic people. You know, because uh, of men like Patrick, you know, St. Patrick or um, others who, who brought the gospel to whatever ethnic group you're from um, and subdued those people. That has had an influence over the centuries uh, on us. So David is saying, I'm going to give thanks with all my heart, with my affections, with my mind, with my will, the whole, the totality of my being. And I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will worship and honor the true and the living God before all the idols of the earth. But the one thing that people will note about us is that we are worshipers. That we, we worship, and this is, Jesus had to remind the woman at the well that the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and truth. And so David uh, says that he will praise the Lord before all the gods. And then verse 2, I will bow down toward your holy temple. And here again we see a second time that David says, I will give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and for your truth. Now, uh, the temple is significant here. I will bow down toward your holy temple. Why the temple? Well, because that's the place where God's name is. That's where God dwells. That's where the, the Shekinah glory is in the temple. That's where the Ark of the Covenant is. That's where the sacrifices that picture Jesus Christ are to be found. And so what do we do? We don't have a, a temple today. Remember, again, Jesus told the woman at the well that a time was coming and now is when it won't be on Mount Zion or any other mountain that you will worship. So what are we to do? Where are we to bow? Well, we bow to the Father through Jesus Christ, because Christ is the fulfillment of the temple. Jesus said, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. What Jesus is saying is, I'm the fulfillment of this physical structure here in Jerusalem. And when this structure is gone, uh, it won't matter 
Because the prophet said it won't, they won't look for the Ark of the Covenant anymore, despite the, the movie. We won't look for the Ark of the Covenant anymore. Why? Because Jesus has fulfilled that. Jesus is the fulfillment of that Ark of the Covenant. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. And therefore, when the Bible says, I will bow down to your holy temple, it's just simply a way of saying, I will bow down to the Father through Jesus Christ. I will bow down to Christ. And I will worship in, in, in the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is why we pray in the name of Jesus. Because he is the fulfillment of the temple. So we don't have to bow down in a particular direction uh, anymore like Daniel. He bowed down to the temple when he was in Babylonian captivity, bowing by his window. We don't have to bow to the east. We, we bow to the name of Christ. We bow to the name of Jesus, which is above every name. He is the fulfillment of all the temple sacrifices. He's the fulfillment of all the uh, uh, laws that pertain to the temple. The cleansing is done by Jesus. Christ has been sacrificed once and forever. There's no need for any more sacrifices. Je Jesus, on the moment he died, what happened to the temple? A miracle happened at the temple. The curtain, which went from the very top of the temple in the inner room all the way down to the bottom, it was split. The gospel writers tell us it was split from the top down to the bottom. It was rent in two, signifying now that by the blood of Christ, the blood has been sprinkled now on the mercy seat for us. We don't need a sinful high priest to go into that inner room any longer with the blood of a bull. We have Christ's blood now that has opened the way into the holy of holies. And so we give thanks through Christ, through Jesus, through his work. And so as we give thanks, we, we give thanks to the Lord this week in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks. We ought to remember that. We, many of you are going to be meeting with family members who do not know Jesus. And they need to know that you give thanks to the Lord in the name of the Lord Jesus. That Jesus is the way in which we approach the Father, which we bow down to him. So we give thanks. Now, what does he give thanks here for? He says, give, I, and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. Now, notice that the psalmist here is thanking the Lord through Jesus for what? Love and truth. You need both. Love and truth. Some churches want to teach all that there is is love, love, love. And there are some churches, it's just truth, truth, truth. <laughs> but you need love and truth in, in a church. Uh, Paul says that without love, we are empty sounding gongs, clanging cymbals, annoying musical instruments in the hand of a toddler. Uh, that, but without truth, then we don't really have love either. Uh, those who think they're being loving by denying the truth are not being loving at all. And, and so the, the biblical church must always have love and truth. We must care for people and we must care for the truth. Uh, and so he says, I'll give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. 
for you have magnified your word. Now, what is the truth? Well, there it is. It is the scriptures for you have magnified your word according to all your name. Where do we find the truth? We find it in God's revelation, in the word of God. So let's not be ungrateful for our Bibles this week. The Bible is the light which helps us to know what love is and what the truth is. Let's be grateful for the scriptures that have been given to us. Um, Let's love the whole Bible. Not just our favorite parts, but all of the Bible. Jesus said that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from his mouth. Jesus elsewhere says that the scriptures cannot be broken. The Bible is infallible. It does. Uh, it is inerrant. It does not err. And so we um, should be grateful for the Bible as well this week. The, you know, it's the Bible is what has built us as a people. Uh, fundamentally, um, even even Alexis de Tocqueville said that the strength of America was in her pulpits. It, it was the preaching of the word of God, which brought about the character that that helped build this nation. The trouble is, we're as we move away from God, we move away from his word. We, we are denying ourselves the source of what. Builds us as as a nation. What causes us to prosper as a nation is is the gospel. It's godly character. It's truth. And 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 if we deny the the truth of God's word, then we are cutting ourselves off of the very source of our own greatness. Psalm thirty three says, "Blessed is that nation whose God." Is the Lord, whose God is Jehovah, and and one of the things, one one of the reasons, if you're you're visiting, one of the reasons we talk so much about revival and reformation is, is that we believe that's what we need here. We we need the work of God again in our country. If you wonder what really is fundamentally wrong with our country, you know, for all the quarreling and the division and and the partisanship. And this is not to say we have some kind of sinless past. We don't. But what, what we need as a nation, more than anything, is a, a renewing, reviving work of the Spirit of God. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. We need a reviving of biblical teaching and preaching. We need more preaching, not less preaching. More church services, not less church services. More Sunday observance, not less Sunday observance. We, we need more of that. There's a temptation to think that the technology is what's going to save us. And technology is just a, a tool. Technology does not have the power to save. Technology can be used for great good, but it can be used for great evil, too. And in fact, technology is dangerous. As we increase in wickedness as a nation, technology becomes less and less our friend if our character as a people continues to decline. And we see that as well. That's why pornography is the most downloaded item uh, on the Internet, uh, because 
uh, of the wickedness of our nation. And so the technology is just causing the, the wickedness to increase. Now it's doing good things too. It's in causing the gospel to increase in foreign lands, especially where people can hear the gospel if they're like English speakers and they can hear our sermons. Um, and so there, there's great good there. But, but friends, uh, don't make an idol out of technology. Um, we, we, what we need more than anything is a work, a good old-fashioned work of the Spirit. Revival and reformation at every level. The individual level, the family, the church, the culture, the community, the state, the nation, the world, the nations. Uh, we need a work of God's Spirit. Now, there's encouraging news in this psalm about that. And you see that in verses 4 through 6. Because the psalmist is thankful that the Lord has heard him and has answered his prayers. But notice here what else he's thankful for. Now, this is written, boys and girls, 3,000 years ago. And what does David say here? He says, all the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord. Now, let me ask you something right here. What does that mean? Can we let it mean what it means? <laughs> Can we just let that sentence mean what it says? Please. There are a lot of Christians out there and they're very pessimistic. It's going to get worse and worse and worse, Pastor. Can we please let the gospel speak? All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. That's a prophecy from David. Speaking of the days of the greater David. That because of the work of the gospel, the nation's will be brought under the Lordship of Jesus. Jesus is the Savior of the world, friends. You know, our, our Puritan fathers understood this. And there are a lot of Presbyterians who don't understand this. Look at larger catechism 191 this afternoon sometime. What does it mean by kingdom come? And look at the answer that the Westminster Divines gave. There are a lot of OPC ministers who don't preach that way today. We need to believe in the promises of God. You know, if there was ever a man who had no reason to believe the promise of God, it was Abraham and Sarah. And God says, I'm going to make you the father of the nations. I mean, if any, any couple had any reason to doubt it was them. And yet what? Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. You take your average Christian today and you give them this promise that all the kings of the earth will give thanks to you. And they're like, oh, yeah, right. Abraham believed. You don't. Let God be true and all of us liars. We need to give thanks that what John saw in Revelation 7, verse 9, is going to come to pass. 
And if, he, and if you won't believe, he'll find people who will believe that promise. And it will work towards it. God is looking for people who, who take this seriously and who are working to implement it. The, the Great Commission is not a treadmill exercise. I've said this many times. You get on the treadmill, you turn the machine on, you run, 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 run. <laughs> you get all tired, you turn the machine up, and you're standing right where you started. The, God, the Great Commission is not a treadmill exercise. When, when the Lord says, go, disciple the nations, he means disciple the nations. He means tell the kings Jesus is Lord because he has promised that he is going to bring them under his lordship. And David gives thanks for this. All the kings of the earth will give thanks to you, O Lord, when they have heard the words of your mouth. And they will sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. A lot of you don't really think the glory of the Lord is all that great. And he's not going to do a whole lot in history. And what we need is a rapture. That's what most Christians in the South think today. The only thing that's going to save us is, is a rapture. Friends, Jesus has died and has been raised and has ascended to send the Holy Spirit into the world. To bless the preaching and the teaching of the, of the word. Now, listen, I am not saying we're just going to bounce from victory to victory. There are going to be all kinds of setbacks. Paul has said that apostasies would come. But you can't apostatize from paganism, friends. You have to apostatize from a semblance of Christianity. Paul did say there will be times when people will be unbelievers. There will be setbacks. There are going to be traitors. There are going to be the Judases who betray us. There are going to be the Demases who are going to walk away going after the world. But there's also going to be the successes. That Jesus is going to build his church and the gates of hell will not overcome. Satan is going to attack. Satan is going to strike. Satan is going to do terrible things. Satan is going to have people thrown in prison. Satan is going to have people executed. Satan is, is going to divide. Satan is going to seek to deceive and lead many people astray. Satan is going to fire fiery darts at you. He's going to fire fiery darts at your grandchildren. He's going to do all that. But in the end, Christ is going to prevail, friends. We have to believe and not be unbelieving. We have to we have to believe the promises of God and not what we see with our eyes. Abraham did not look at his body to see whether what God said was true or not. He looked at the promise. He looked at God's word and somehow, by the grace of God, through the Spirit upon Father Abraham, he believed he would become the father of many nations. Father of all the nations. Because he is the father of the Lord Jesus Christ. He believed. And I want to encourage you to be believing in the promise in the, of God's word, his covenant word that cannot be broken. 
Now, how, how do we know? Well, the Lord keeps his covenant. Second Samuel seven, we see the covenant with David. And then, of course, Jesus, the new covenant is Jesus is the son of David, and yet he is the greater David. Let me say a few things just by further application. Number one, God is still faithful to his covenant word. These promises that we find in Scripture are ours as a covenant family. They're ours to keep in a time of need. And we we have need of these promises because the battle looks to be going against us. At least here in the Western Hemisphere. In North America, we need these promises more than ever. We need to be believing. God is faithful to his word. Let God be true. Not what you or I think is going on by what we see on the news. Here's the second thing I want you to keep in mind. The Lord still hears us through Jesus Christ when we pray these promises. These promises, boys and girls, are like keys given to us by the Father. The Father puts special keys in our hands and we take the key. You remember this in Pilgrim's Progress, don't you? When Christian finds himself in the jail, in the prison of the giant and he remembers that he's got a key in his pocket. And, and he takes the key out and he, he comes out of the prison. We need to remember that the Lord has given us these keys by which we call upon the Lord. And thirdly, the Lord still deals experimentally or experientially with his children through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In Romans chapter 8. You know, David said that uh, you made me bold and with strength in my soul. I, I skipped over that earlier at the verse three B. And the spirit still does that. He makes us bold. He gives strength to our soul. You know, the. You think of um, other places in Scripture where God has given us great promises regarding what we see in verses four and following. Isaiah chapter two is one that you hear me pray regularly in the pastoral prayer. What is Isaiah two? Isaiah two, you'll remember, is the promise that God has given where he said that he will lift up Zion and make it the chief mountain in the earth. That is, he will lift up the place of his name and of his worship and the nations will come streaming Unto that mountain. It's a picture of the nations being brought to Christ. Being brought into the church. We have Psalm 86 verse 9. All nations whom thou hast made shall come and worship thee. We have the kingdom parables of the mustard seed. Where the mustard seed is planted the tiniest of seeds. And yet it grows into the largest tree in the garden. We see it with the leaven. Leavening the whole of the loaf. So we have reasons to thank the Lord for the success of the gospel because it's promised. But then I finally want us to look at verse seven and eight. And we have a third reason for Thanksgiving. We thank the Lord for hearing us. We thank the Lord for the gospel spreading. Thirdly, we thank the Lord for the assurance that we have in God's promise. Look at David here. David is not living an easy life. And I don't want you to think that just because the gospel will prevail among the nations, our life will be free from trouble. Just the opposite. There will be many trials and temptations for each of you. 
and me. And what does David say, though, in verse seven? Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you will revive me or your version may say strengthen me. You will stretch forth your hand against the wrath of my enemies and your right hand will save me. So what do we have here? We have a promise of salvation in the midst of trouble and persecution. David knows that his life is full of trials and tribulations. He's running from Saul. He's hiding in the cave of Adullam. We know that uh, he has enemies among the nations. We know he has enemies in his own family. And yet through it all, the Lord will preserve him. And we know that as Christians, we too will have many adversaries. The world, the flesh, the devil are all against us. Here we need to take God's word again and be assured. The Lord will strengthen us. The Lord will revive us. We can be grateful that though hell come at us and there will be seasons where it will seem as though hell itself is attacking you and your family, though there will be very Low days. Some of you have already gone through very low days as a Christian or low days as a family. And yet God will what? He will be with you in the midst of the trouble. The Lord will strengthen you. He strengthens his children, though they are persecuted, though they are attacked by the evil one, though they are providentially afflicted. The Lord will what? He will be with us. You will Revive me in the midst of trouble. Your hand will be against the wrath of my enemies. They intended it for evil. God will intend it for good. God will intend it for your sanctification, even though they intended it for your trouble, for your distress. And we we need to remember the psalmist uh, in Psalm 50. Call upon me in the day of trouble. Pray when the Lord has you in trouble. Call upon him. The Bible gives us the promise of first John chapter one, verse nine, that if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us. And then he goes on in verse eight, the Lord will accomplish what concerns me. What concerns David? Well, I think it's that David would be king and that David's kingdom would endure through Jesus Christ. But you who are in the kingdom, what about this? What is it? What is the Lord accomplishing concerning you? Well, we know this. He's accomplishing our sanctification, that we become like Jesus. And he's accomplishing your future glorification. Romans 8.28 kicks in right here. That, that everything is working together for my good and for the glory of the Lord. This is what God is seeking to accomplish in your life and in my life, that we should be raised up at the last day with the Lord Jesus Christ, clothed in his righteousness, glorified and holy and sinless, able to serve him. David concludes this psalm by what? Your loving kindness, O Lord, is everlasting. Do not forsake the works of your hands. He's asking, Lord, Help me to continue to persevere. Bless me, O Lord. Don't forsake me. And of course, we know in Jesus Christ, he who began a good work in you will complete it. God will not forsake his work in you. 
He will cause you to persevere. He will cause you to endure to the end. He will. Even if your life, like Paul's, is being poured out like a drink offering, you will be able to say by the Holy Spirit's help, I have run the race. I have I have endured. I have finished the course. Let me bring it to a close. I want us uh, this week to try and be grateful. To work on our gratitude, to be thankful. This is a psalm of thanksgiving. It's a psalm of thanksgiving for answered prayers in the past. But also it is a psalm of thanksgiving for assurances and promises concerning the future. And I want us to be grateful for both. God has heard us and answered us in the past. And yet God also will be with us in the future. He will be with his church. He will be with you individually. He will be with his covenant family. He will bring all of this to pass. We will look back on the Lord's word and we will say he was faithful. Amen.